How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I love a Benson bed. Love a Benson bed with a bit of storage underneath as well. This is very exciting and I'm also going to say slightly triggering and I'm embracing it and listener, I'm curious about it. Be curious. That's what Katrina, my therapist would say. Be curious. Be like, difficult to be curious, Katrina, when you're on the floor. <laughs> that was a low moment anyway. I don't know where that came from. Uh, Sarah Stein Lebrano, I'm going to be talking to. She is a faculty member of the School of Life. She will explain what the School of Life is and they have a book on self-hatred hence my triggered state she's wonderful let's have a listen i'm thinking that she's in oxford because i know she's been doing her phd down there so when we're speaking i'm still imagining she's in some very intelligent atmosphere in oxford but who knows she could have just been in a cafe nero in oxford street let's have a listen to the interview so the school of life is an organization founded over a decade ago by a number of people but the creative lead at the moment is alan de bottom and we are an organization that helps people live what we might call wiser or more fulfilling lives. And so that means not necessarily lives where you feel, you know, deep joy all of the time, but where you come away having lived a good life for your, let's say, obituary rather than your CV. We're very interested in particular in helping people develop resilience because we're living in rather rough times. And we're very, very interested in therapy. And we have a big team of therapists and we help people access therapy. And so, yes, we're trying to save people a little bit of time and grief in their passageway through life. And how did you come to it then, eight years ago? I was actually hired to help with our YouTube channel originally. I was a little tiny baby 23-year-old who was very interested in obscure intellectual theorists like Theodore Adorno. And um... Oh, now we're talking Adorno on jazz. Yeah, do you, do you like Luca? I preferred the revised Adorno on jazz. Yeah. Oh, really? Tell me what you like about Adorno. I'm so curious. Well, he wrote a brilliant... I studied... I don't know how I came to studying the book, but um, I must have been doing sociology, but I was also doing mainly political theorists. I just... I loved what he said about the, the supposed chaos of jazz, whereas right. actually it's not. His argument is that there isn't chaos at all. It all comes down to the base, basically. And I just, I just thought it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, I am... Um, uh, and this is true in my academic research as well. I love the Frankfurt School. I'm very interested in their work. I'm kind of interested in modernising their work in a way and making it something that we can think about again today in 2023. But it makes sense, actually, that since you do music, you would be reading Adorno because he is our 
I would say, like, the father of grumpy music criticism in some ways <laughs> for the West. Yeah. And I also love... Um, oh, come on. He died about five years ago, wrote a seminal work on art. Berger? Yeah. Yeah, I love John Berger. Changed my life. Absolutely. It changed the way I think about all kinds of things, even my own body. And actually, you know something that I've discovered, which now all your listeners can try to find, is that there's an obscure set of DVDs, which you can only like buy from America but play in Europe. But in any case, it has four different celebrities going to the elderly John Berger's house and interviewing him. And one of them is Tilda Swinton. So I've bought this, and my pleasure of the month is going to be watching this really weird set of art DVDs. But if you like Berger, I mean, I recommend it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I shall find it. So you were really interested in these kind of people like Adorno, these sort of... Yeah, I'd kind of gone to this deep academic route, and then, Mm. to be honest with you, I discovered that it was lacking in some way. I think I really wanted to communicate ideas to the public. I mean, I don't think I could have articulated that 23, but... I did feel that there was something disconnected about what I was doing from the things I most cared about, like having a society that isn't hugely harmful to vast numbers of people, for example. And so I just went around looking for real jobs instead of getting a PhD. I sort of finished the master's and and there was a little ad for someone who could write essays about these different thinkers. And that work ended up becoming not only part of the YouTube channel, but also part of our book, Great Thinkers, which is full of fascinating insights into sort of what we can really take away from these intellectual thinkers. Yeah, and then and I just stayed, and uh, now neither of us can get rid of each other, as I like to joke yeah. to the team, you know. I know it's a group, you are part of the faculty, it's a big team, all your books are very collaborative in that way, there's not sort of one set author. Yeah. But I'm very interested in talking to you today about self-hatred. You have a book on it, and it's even sort of leading up to talking to you, I suppose in part it's probably slightly triggering my own self-hatred. Yeah, I think that's probably going on a bit. And also, hatred is such a... Strong word. Strong word, isn't it? And and the, the notion of self-hatred, the first thing that comes to my mind is this sort of punitive sort of effect of it. You know, almost like sort of whipping ourselves. So talk me through how you approached the topic. Sure. So... As I mentioned, we're very interested in therapy at the School of Life. We have a team of therapists. We work very closely with them. And I suppose one of the things that we're interested in is trying to articulate what therapy is and what it does for people uh, who may never have experienced it or maybe not had a good experience, what it can do, ideally, anyway. And one of the things it can help us do is discover that things that we might not have previously identified as an aspect of self-hatred are, in fact... One of the ways that, as you say, we punish ourselves and in the process make our lives less interesting and fruitful and good than they otherwise might be. So I think a lot of the time we can train ourselves with very arbitrary rules like, you know, oh no, my kind of people don't do that sort of thing. I would never have that sort of fun on the weekend. Or, you know, I can't ask for a promotion or repeating the same patterns again and again in romantic relationships because we, at some level, don't think that we deserve or could possibly get a happier situation and I would say all of these are just examples of the role that self-hatred can play in our life right and it doesn't always articulate itself although sometimes it does as you know I fucking hate myself however you know very often it's it's more subtle and complicated we're taking on from Freud the idea that there there are things that we repress and we don't recognize about ourselves and that are stored more in our unconscious and expressed in these sort of indirect ways so we wanted to work through this book and and help people understand how self-hatred might be playing a role in their life, even if they can't name it as such, and what the solution is. And 
to say something a little bit more about that, we also, you know, there's a lot of self-help stuff in the world. It's quite terrifying, actually. If you go into a bookstore, I mean, yeah. ages and ages of it. And then if you go into a bookstore in America, there's ages and ages of it, and half of it is to do with Jesus. But um, I think something that really troubles us about the, the more secular stuff in particular, actually, is that a lot of it suggests that the answer to self-hatred is to love yourself. And often that means sort of like looking in the mirror and saying affirmations and saying, you know, like, I am beautiful. I am amazing. And I don't want to say there's nothing to this. If, if that's really working for you, you know, there's no point in yucking your yum. But I do think that this is a real challenging place for many people to start, let's say. Because, firstly, a lot of the time we aren't actually amazing or incredible. You know, we're sort of average and normal and boring and about to get on the highway and drive to work and nothing feels especially spectacular about that so one of the main ideas that goes throughout this book is that the real antidote to self-hatred isn't self-love in the sense of telling ourselves we're wonderful and amazing and special and unique but rather self-acceptance just really seeing ourselves as okay fine and this is a hard idea it's I would say truly countercultural in the sense that it goes against the grain of most things we're taught in school in life in work through advertising etc but we're very keen to promote it because we think it's a much healthier route towards a happier form of life than constantly trying to pump ourselves up. I mean, this is what I love about the book because I, I have written about self-love and I have a problem with the term self-love. I much prefer self-acceptance. And right. also, for me, empathy is a hugely powerful word because I think almost the, the sort of sad irony about self-love is we can then use that as a sort of rod for our own back because we're staring in the mirror going, love yourself, love yourself. And if that's not working, then we can shame ourselves for not feeling self-love. Yeah. You know? so, yeah, we failed at that too. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas I think yes. acceptance is a far less, for me anyway, but I'm interested in what you think to talk more about it, you're going to come across less resistance, aren't you? Because you're not going to be fighting against those things that might be mm -hmm. within you for whatever reason, a plethora of reasons. I think it's more powerful. Yes. It's very embracing, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think something I've really noticed about it is that if you demand sort of a very, let's say, passionate form of self-love where you're crazy about yourself, you're going to probably struggle at times, let's say, because... You know, honestly, all of us are a little bit of a screw-up and have difficult qualities. And if we're honest with ourselves at all, or even semi-honest, we're going to notice these negative qualities in ourselves. And it will be difficult to have unrestrained enthusiasm for every aspect of our own personalities. Anything that says otherwise is really just promoting narcissism to a degree. Whereas self-acceptance is a much more simple thing. It's just saying, like, yep, this is how I am, and that just needs to be okay. It needs to be fine. One thing I will say also is this is very good for body stuff as well, uh, for anyone who's kind of in that world of body image or body acceptance that I've kind of always thought that it's very foolish in a way to sort of be body positivity like I love my body because you know honestly our bodies are really challenging and eventually as we always say at the school of life they're going to let us down at a time of their own choosing and we'll die so it doesn't strike me that we necessarily need to love every aspect of our body we just need to accept that that's what it is and it's a little machine for living and um I kind of think that many other aspects of ourselves are like this too. But I think the other thing that's much better for me anyway about the self-acceptance sort of angle is that it doesn't require us to be special or unique or better than other people to be worthy of this kind of basic form of self-regard, let's say. And it also, I find, makes me a little bit gentler and kinder to other people. 
Because actually, if the standard that we're settling for ourselves as like being okay is that we have to love ourselves, then that means that other people being okay, they also have to like be great and lovable. And that's hard, honestly. I mean, if you've worked in a big organization or, you know, I don't know, had to deal with an extended field of in-laws or something, there are going to be people that you do not love. And it is probably a better bar to set that you have to accept them rather than love them. I think there is a more realistic set of goals there and we can be more gentle with other people. Yeah, I think you've brought up a couple of interesting things that I've heard you say. The first thing is, and I would say this would be a distraction, was hearing you say about, you know, people might think, well, I need to elevate myself for self-love to be at this level in terms of above other people, let's say. So to, to unpack that, what I would say is, if people are doing that, they're one-upping themselves. And if you're one-upping yourself, that tends to be coming still from a place of shame, I think, because we're, we're never better mm -hmm. than anyone else, or worse. You know, we can go yeah, one up, one down on people. So mm -hmm. certainly if I, ever, if I have a day, if I'm walking around and I think, oh, oh, oh my jumper's much better than Sarah's, you know. Um, <laughs> and for the listeners, Sarah's got a wonderful black and white jumper on and I have a sort of mm. splodge of pink and red. But, you know, if I was one-upping myself, it would be a distraction if I'm thinking that's self-love because it's not. I'm using you to step up, you know. Yeah. And I think lots of people do that. All one down. And you're also just as vulnerable as the next designer jumper. I mean, as soon as you meet some guy yes. who has an even better one, yeah, like, exactly. you're screwed, right? You know? But isn't that interesting? I mean, we're getting... No, I think this is important, actually. Isn't that interesting? Because let's say I'm relying on this jumper to make me one up. It can also make me one down on someone because suddenly the jumper goes from being my crutch to feeling amazing to suddenly the worst thing in the world and I must rip it off and get the new thing. But I think it's really interesting what you're saying about trying to love other people because people aren't necessarily lovable. I mean, some people would maybe say that this approach is quite cynical, do you think? Do people say that? They could, Or, or yeah, maybe, but... maybe pessimistic? I don't know. Right, well, pessimistic for sure. I think we would definitely embrace that. Like, art... <laughs> Our team thinks about pessimism as a very important aspect of human development, actually, right? That it is children and babies and toddlers who are completely idealistic. That they, For example, one of our favorite child psychologists, Melanie Klein, talks about how when children are very small, they tend to see their parents or caregivers as either, you know, incredible, perfect, amazing, because they're getting what they want from their parents, basically, or horrible, and I hate you, mommy, you know. And it's a very complicated psychological moment in development that unfortunately some adults never quite hit where you can see people as both, right? And you can say, you know, Will is charming and thoughtful and kind and also, I don't know, forgetful and occasionally... Um, Selfish. Sure, yeah, yeah, whatever you choose. You know, many people, you'll probably see this with some of your friends or relatives about their romantic partners in particular, will still relate to people close up in their lives in this way where they're either terrible or wonderful and kind of nothing in between. But Klein says that adulthood is really when you hit that stage that she calls depressive realism, where you can see the other for this kind of complicated set of things that they are. And we would say that that's a form of pessimism in a sense, because it's an acknowledgement that nothing in, in human sort of relationships in life is going to be made perfectly straight and wonderful and good. That There's always going to be an aspect of darkness and difficulty in it. But we also think that that's part of what it takes to live a good life is this moment of pessimism, essentially. And of course, that means including about ourselves. Well, do you think that leads us to one of my favourite things that I love talking about, which is the difference between hopes and expectations? Because yeah. for me, if I have expectations, my birthday today mm -hmm. must be the best day I've had this year because it's my birthday. And mm -hmm. 
along with that, I'm sure at one part there can be possibly some barriers of a lack of self-love. You know, do I want to celebrate my birthday? Do I not? Oh, I don't know if I want all these people coming around. Mm, why am I doing this? You know, yeah. and on the other hand, there comes with it a sort of pressure of like, oh, it's the birthday. This, what are you doing today? What will you be doing later? Who are you seeing? You know, are you treating yourself today? There's a sort of lot of, I call it the New Year's Eve pressure. It comes with a lot mm. of pressure. Yeah, you're not supposed to just be at home sort of watching, I don't know, a documentary about Britney Spears. You're supposed to be on top of some skyscraper with tons of yeah. views. And... There's a pressure there. And I wonder if we can think about self-love as coming with a sort of pressure. Whereas self-acceptance, there is no pressure. You'd literally take the pressure off. Yeah, I think that's think? more or less right. Or do you think there still is? So here's what I think. I think you're absolutely right. Human beings are incredibly sensitive to expectations. And in my own research, my academic research, it's one of the most robust findings in all of social science and cognitive science about humans, right? Is that if you set their expectations one way, they will literally see the world a different way because of those. And I also find this is true in my professional life with my various clients that I do design work for. That the best thing you can do is kind of set their expectations in this kind of gentle thoughtful medium realm with you know there might be delays and like this thing could go wrong and hopefully the product will be good in the end but you know here are all the different because then if things don't go so well they're actually all right about it instead of furious okay. and shocked and surprised right and if things go well they're delighted and, and actually it's a good tool to use on yourself even more than clients you're your own client in the sense well i was going right? to ask so, yes uh, using that for yourself as well. i use it on myself all the time like okay you know i'm gonna have to go to america to visit my parents and um it will be nice but also i will be very jet lagged and someone is going to bring up that time when i was a child and whatever so i think that's completely right i think is there pressure with self-acceptance? It one says no, but I don't think that means that nothing happens as a result of it. I think that what it opens you up to is instead of feeling pressure that you have to be this or that way and disappointment if you're not, it allows you to notice things that you wouldn't otherwise because you're not just constantly assessing in terms of good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. Am I doing good today? Is this what I expected? Is it bad, actually? But you can instead begin to ask deeper, more sort of thoughtful questions like, Ah, I'm noticing that today I've been very critical of everyone around me, and I wonder why, right? So I guess all I would say is I think that it brings out different qualities in us to be self-accepting. And some of those qualities are still conducive to growth because they let us start from a new angle and ask new questions. I mean, interestingly, you know, you, you were talking about the beginning of self-help books, and particularly in America, you know, half the self-help books can be related to religion, probably Christianity, I would imagine. Yeah. But actually... I think in a lot of the spiritual teachings across all religions, mm -hmm. maybe we do find self-acceptance in them. Yeah, think? I think that's right. So I would always say, you know, regardless of what you personally believe, most religions, unless they're really harmful cults or something, are social technologies, let's say. They do something for society as a whole, and they do something for individuals and their relationships with others. They do something useful, right? So if you look at Christianity, which is, of course, the most common still religion in Britain, it's a social technology in part for having people forgive one another and recognize the harmful role of money in their lives. And also, notably, one of the main teachings in Christianity is that everyone is flawed. I mean, the, the most useful way of thinking about the doctrine of original sin, let's say, uh, and there are some harmful ways of thinking about it, is that something is a little bit broken from the start with human beings and can never be made completely whole and straight. And what hopefully that leads you to do, uh, here I am, a secular Jew spitballing about Christianity, so apologies to the Christian listeners, but ideally what that allows you to do is look at yourself when you fall short of, you know, how Jesus himself would behave and think, okay, I need to improve or I don't want to have done that, but 
I can also be compassionate towards myself as I explore this because I know that I'm never going to be perfect and no human being is. And it also ideally means you're more compassionate towards other people. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I mean, original sin, I think, is really interesting and can really mm. tie in with... Yeah, it can either be a form of self-hatred as a doctrine or <laughs> well, it can be the opposite, right? Well, I think I can't remember who I was reading. It might have been Aquinas at the time. But anyway, I remember coming across original sin and thinking, oh, OK, well, yeah, we are all kind of a bit flawed. But, and rather than using that to beat myself up, which some people might do, you know, every day I'm going to do something that isn't perfect. A friend might be let down by me that I might not even know. They might have taken something I said the wrong way. Every day I can choose something to berate myself with, like I'm looking at my table, mm -hmm. I've just got back from holiday. I mean, literally, I will do it now for you live. There's a glasses Great. case and I'm looking at it and thinking, I've lost that pair of glasses and they were expensive. <laughs> I'm looking at a load of receipts that I haven't organised and it's tax coming up. So I could sit here and chastise myself, but I've definitely got to a stage where I'm noticing all these things. I'm not trying to get rid of this sort of berating voice. I'm just going, oh, that's interesting. And I've sort of just accepted that I'm always going to have some sort of background voice. I'm not trying to get rid of it. I don't think it's necessarily possible to get rid of that berating voice that we have for ourselves. It would be exhausting to do so, no? I mean, all the psychological research that there is suggests that It, deleting things from our brain is basically impossible, right? There's always the joke about, like, don't think of an elephant, which is from a psychological study. And, of course, obviously the first thing you think of is an elephant. So the idea that you can kind of block thoughts, it's not like an email system. You know, you can't really do that. But what we suggest at the end of this book is that you instead think about self-accepting replies to your inner critic. If your inner critic says, Will, you've left an empty pizza box here, you're a terrible slob, and how can this be your life? It's your birthday and this is what you wake up to or whatever. Then, you know, you might instead craft a self-accepting reply that says something like, you know, actually, it's nice that I'm not incredibly uptight and that my room can be a bit messy and it means that 
I can have a relaxing birthday, which is better than most people get, and birthdays are just another day, but I've made pretty good use of the days in the last 365 rotations of the earth, and so on. And none of this has to, you know, big yourself up. It's just being able to hear that voice and say something back to it that is more thoughtful and tolerant and compassionate and moderate than the bit of our head that always likes to tear us apart and knows just how to do it. And I guess the, the thing that really interests me within this as well, what's coming up as I'm hearing you talk then, is the notion of responsibility within this because there could be a risk that we become so self-accepting that we might think, well, I'm not going to shame myself for any of this and yet we might continue to do certain behaviours that maybe don't have brilliant repercussions on us and others and we're not taking responsibility because we're going, well, I'll just accept it. Well, I spoke to right. you like that, but I'm just accepting it. So where do we sort of access, for want of a better word, responsibility and self-acceptance? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that the way we're using that term doesn't mean accepting it as in it doesn't need to change. It's just seeing it as something that can be evaluated without, let's say, doing yet another form of violence, for lack of a better word, to the self, right? Maybe you screwed up at work. <laughs> In no way are we suggesting that you not try to improve your, I don't know, work performance and therefore retain your job. It's just that you're able to look at it without then also doing yourself not only the anxiety of fixing the problem, but also the difficult, painful wound to your ability to function by berating yourself as well, right? I think this is a really important area because I've noticed a lot with people who struggle to find the balance of self-acceptance and the fact that they can do things wrong and that, yeah. that they can change. They may have misread self-acceptance as sort of like essentially self-affirmation at all times or something, right? Which is a different thing. Well, no, it's either, yes, I'm going to self-affirmate myself forever and I refuse to be shamed, or they go the other way and they're like, yes, no, I'm an awful person because I said that to you and you're right, I'm awful. You can accept your failings and look to change without shaming yourself, I think. I think that's the place yeah. that this book allows you to get to. That's really our goal, absolutely. And I would say it has a close relationship to the question of like what self-care is, right? I think that that term has been very honestly commercialized to mean something like, ah, you know, you've had a bad week, so you should get an expensive thing and another expensive thing, and maybe you should, you know, do some substances and you should have a nice time because you deserve it. And I'm not saying that one should never have a nice time or do some substances, but to me, as a process of making sure that I will be okay in the long run, that is not generally what is at stake. And I think a thoughtful, intelligent definition of self-care is far more about things like putting yourself to bed early, saying nice things to yourself even when you've had a hard day, drinking water, <laughs> taking care of essentially your long-term interests, or like your future, future Sarah, let's say, for me, right? And some of self-care is therefore not very fun. It's sort of like, I don't know, I lift weights and I don't enjoy that. But to me, that is a form of self-care. Well, discipline. Yeah, it's discipline, right. And it's sort of like, it's like the not fun stuff. But if you think about it, if a child or a pet or an elderly relative, it's the things that you would do for them because you know it would be good for them. But you're doing them for yourself, right? And that includes sometimes going to therapy, even if one's masculinity feels a bit threatened by it. I'll be glad I did this, but I feel bad in the you know beginning. And I think... Similarly, self-acceptance is actually, it's much less about sort of saying like, oh yes, I love this aspect of myself. And it's much more about saying like, ah, this is a part of my 
less than ideal shared humanity with other people. And once I accept that it is happening, I can think more rationally and thoughtfully and earnestly about what to do about it rather than just begin to berate myself, basically. It's a much softer, empowering place, I think. Also, interestingly, hearing what you were saying about sort of self-care, for me, I had this wonderful therapist, I mean, I basically mention her in every podcast, Lois Evans, and she was hardcore. I said, what's the goal, Lois? And she said, the goal is becoming a functional adult. And, you know, so when I hear you saying things like lifting weights, drinking water, those are kind of like functional adult things. We need to kind of like watch over ourselves, watch over our ego, watch over, yeah, you know, because otherwise we'd all go off the flipping rails. Right. And if you think about the people you love, it's not that you just unconditionally affirm them, right? So in a weird sense, to cycle back to the self-love, if self-acceptance is the form of self-love, it's the form of love that you give to someone who you really want to be all right in 20 years, right? Like your children or uh, your friend who's just gone a little bit off the rails. And it's not always fun stuff, but I think it is a form of concern for the other person and their long-term happiness, essentially. How do other people come into helping us or our interactions with other people? How do they come into aiding us to find self-acceptance? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one of the first things to say is that in all of the research that I ever read about psychology, which is kind of all that I do for my research, the number one predictor of people's happiness in their life is the quality of their human relationships with the people close to them. And I think this is quite a profound insight because we live in an extremely individualist society and the message that we're constantly given via everything from capitalism to advertising to certain less than helpful forms of self-help is that, you know, it's a it's a, all a do-it-yourself project and you're going to make or break it on your own and so on. And it's just not true. It's just not what you find in any empirical literature that we have about what makes people happy. What makes people happy is their relationships with other human beings. And so what that means when it comes to questions about sort of self-hatred and, and well-being is that if there are people in our lives that are doing us less than a good set of favors, let's say, that are causing us to think more and more critical thoughts about ourselves, to judge ourselves harshly, to put ourselves down, we might need to take some space from those people. And in extreme cases, we might need to get rid of them, right, from our sort of daily orbit anyway. So I think that's the first thing to say. And on the flip side, of course, the nice thing about this is that it suggests that maybe the most meaningful thing we can do in our life is less about achievement in some grand sense, you know, and more about friendship. And friendship is maybe the number one valued thing at the School of Life in some ways. We have books on friendship. We partially see this as a necessary antidote to the extremely obsessive culture around romantic love that we have in our modern society, right? Where like romantic love is seen as like the savior yeah. uh, that comes along and whisks you off your feet and then you're happy forever after, which is absolutely unrealistic, even in a good relationship. But we would say that friends are, ideally, if they're good friends, they are the model for self-acceptance and self-love. That the way we treat the person who is our best friend, if we're having a good, healthy, happy friendship, is the way we should treat ourselves, right? This is the like fundamental unit, in a way, is two people together rather than one person on his or her own. So I guess what I'm saying is that, actually, a lot of the time we already have a good model for what self-acceptance and self-love, even, although we don't mostly use that word in this book, look like, and we see it through friendship, where we're genuinely generous and thoughtful and occasionally critical and kind, but not, you know, unable to notice problems and all of this good stuff. That's where I'd start with this, I think, you know. We probably have someone in our life we can use as a model. What about for people who, you know, certainly I would say probably five years ago for me, and maybe still in part, actually people can be quite triggering for me. 
-hmm. you could go into because of my attachment or whatever, past trauma. But sometimes right, I see, yeah. being being around people. So so there might be people listening, you know, when, when they hear friendship groups and who you hang out with is really important. For them, even just having one friend might be very triggering or people might be very triggering. Does the book kind of like give examples of how you might find, you know, safe people that you could be around or sort of testing it for yourself? Yeah, I mean, this is such a such a complicated thing. And I almost think, you know, I love representing the School of Life on the radio, but every once in a while, I think, oh gosh, like this question is for a therapist and I am a mere social science researcher. <laughs> but that said, what I would say about this is I think there are, you know, um, from what I understand in our current diagnostic literature, you know, there are sort of a small pool of people who find it really difficult to have any kind of human relationships for whatever complicated reasons that are usually related to trauma and abuse and neglect and all of us to a much lesser degree perhaps, but still a significant way can find human relationships triggering even when the other person hasn't necessarily done anything wrong mm. uh, although maybe they have <laughs> and so I guess the first thing to say here is you know this is what kind of what therapy is for and it's a very specific thing uh, that almost extends beyond friendship for this kind of moment where uh, just human relationships on their own can't provide us with the kind of things that we might need to develop into even better versions of ourselves because therapists are notably not your friend, right? And they shouldn't seem like your friend. And one of the reasons that they aren't like your friend is that they are giving you a space to share things that will possibly have social consequences if they were in your real life, but which you can then begin to disambiguate on your own or with a the therapist. And so I guess what I'm saying here is, I think you're right. Some people are not yet in a place where they can benefit from the kind of friendship and modeling that I'm talking about. And all of us might suddenly discover that for some reason, like our really successful friend is making us feel incredibly defensive and grouchy. And we need to go and do some work on that because it's actually not their fault that they've gotten a promotion or whatever. And I think therapy is the right place for this a lot of the time because it allows us to kind of reenact in some cases what is at stake for us without it having let's say, disastrous consequences in that friendship or something, right? It lets yes. us play out all of our complexities and difficulties and forms of self-hatred in a sort of safe play space where we can try different solutions and maybe they don't work, you know? And then we realize that we were wrong or whatever. And we can do all of that without necessarily pouring it onto other people who live in our social world and have to deal with us day to day. In a way, although it doesn't sound like it and sometimes it's much less pleasant than this, it's a form of play in the sense that it's a form of trying things out in miniature before they have deep real world lasting consequences and yeah so I guess I agree with you I think sometimes that can be really challenging for people and I, I wish I could just drag a school of life therapist on to say something even more intelligent about well, that. Well no what you no, what right. you said what you've said is is absolutely brilliant could you give listeners if they wanted a sort of surmising if that's the right word of what tools maybe they can come away with to work towards self-acceptance? Yeah, sure. So this is a book about the many ways in which self-hatred can manifest in our life, even when we don't see it as such. And so the very first bit of the book is helping us spot forms of self-hatred as they come into our life in areas where we might not immediately think of them it that way. For example, workaholism is often a form of self-hatred because it's kind of the inability for us to grant ourselves fun or it's, it's a way of necessarily perhaps thinking about ourselves as valuable only in terms of our productivity, for example, right? And then we try to gently debunk a theme in our current culture where we see self-love as the solution to self-hatred. So we often will say, oh, you know, you just need to love yourself more. And what we mean by that is that 
in this bad paradigm, we will often suggest, oh, you know, just tell yourself you're great and you're wonderful and see all the beautiful, excellent, unique things about you. But while this might work for some people, our suggestion in this book is that it is sometimes problematic or unrealistic and often a tricky place for people who are really struggling with self-hatred to start. And instead of self-love in the sense of self-affirmation, we suggest that you begin with self-acceptance, which is to look at yourself and notice the things that are wrong and flawed and difficult, but to be able to come at them from a place of compassion and recognition that nothing in life is perfect, including other people and including ourselves, and essentially to begin from that place of like, okay, this is true, and it's also not the end of the world that it's true. And we, we talk through a lot of different techniques. One of them we discussed earlier, uh, which was about speaking back to the very critical voice in our head uh, with a voice of self-acceptance and being able to say, yes, you're right, critical voice. Some of what you're saying is true, but I'm working on it. And here are other good aspects. And everyone does this sometimes and, and so on. So what we're suggesting really is the sort of realistic, pessimistic, but pragmatic and somewhat hopeful almost approach that in the long run if we are both realistic and nice to ourselves that's going to be better for us than ruthlessly either criticizing or affirming the way that we currently are. What is your next project that you're working on? Great that you asked. So we've also got a book out right now called Reasons to be Hopeful and of course as you might guess now that you've heard this whole bit it is a gentle pessimistic take on reasons to be hopeful and in particular something I really value about this book is it talks about the difference between bitterness and melancholy so the idea is that a melancholic person knows there are lots of difficult bad things in life that you know some people become Vladimir Putin that the global warming is happening uh, that many marriages end in divorce that none of us end up with quite what we deserve professionally and that there's illness and tragedy and loss and suffering but unlike the bitter person they don't think this is a personal failing or a personal curse. They know that it's a bit random who this happens to and when it happens to them it's not that everyone else in the world hates them and doesn't value them. It's part of the human condition. And that doesn't mean obviously that we shouldn't do anything about global warming or uh, work on our marriages or whatever but it does mean that we can see it in a little bit more of an impersonal way. So once we do that then we can begin to see all kinds of reasons to also be rather hopeful about the world around us because it is a shared uh, communal reality I guess. And anyway I really love this book. I think that could be our next conversation then. Thank you so much, Sarah. I absolutely love talking to you. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. She's brilliant, Sarah. I love those kind of people that are so... I mean, they are so clever. You know, there's a sort of realism to it, and we talked a bit about pessimism. I'd love to know what you think. And you might, by the way, vehemently disagree with everything we spoke about, and that's okay as well. So please get in touch, because it's a conversation. Or talk amongst yourselves. I don't mind. Well, I'm back from Morocco, just so you know. Uh, here are your messages. Couple of interesting messages this week, actually. Hi, Will, I've been really enjoying your podcast. Wonder whether you'd heard of Dr. Chris Palmer, who is an assistant psychiatrist at Harvard. He's written a book about the link between mental illness and metabolic dysfunction disease. And also done several interviews. This person goes on to talk about ketogenic diet in treating bipolar and schizoaffective disorder. And this person says that they've found uh, their panic attacks have stopped and they've almost recovered from an eating disorder using the ketogenic diet. Well, that's very interesting. Very, very interesting. Thank you for getting in touch. Hi, Will and Amy. Oh, Amy, you get a shout out. I knew this would happen. Amy is going to eclipse me. 
Hey Will and Amy, your episode on gut health really hit home for me. I've struggled with digestive issues for years, never really made the connection between my gut health and my mental health. You guys are amazing. Well, thank you. Would you ever do an episode on the benefits of aromatherapy for mental health? Well, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it. Aromatherapy, you see, people thought it got lost in the 80s. It didn't. And this person said they'd love to learn more about how aromatherapeutic oils work and how to use them for different mental health issues. Well, as ever, uh, you've come up with some brilliant suggestions and thank you for your reactions. To get in touch, email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at The Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at The Wellbeing Lab Podcast. I don't know why I'm pronouncing that so. Of the well-being lab. And next week, I'm discussing what it's like to live with a chronic illness, premenstrual dysphoric disorder with Annika Wahid. And if you like this podcast, do give us a rating because it really helps. Or share it with a friend and even leave a review. It gets us to a wider audience. That's all we want. Until then, farewell. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 